This is the 1981 Texas Christadelphian Bible School. This is the fifth class on apostles, their acts, and their words by Brother Alfred North. So far, very little has been said about Paul's letters or any other letters, except for the occasional quotation here and there, and perhaps the odd hint as to when the letter might have been written. You might like to have, though, just for reference, some indication of where the various epistles of Paul do fit in to the various phases of his life. This, with one slight uncertainty, which I'll mention in a moment, is what I take to be that list. First, somewhere about the close of the first missionary journey, or perhaps the beginning of the second, the letter to the Galatians. Second, during the second missionary journey itself, the first and second letters to the Thessalonians. Third, during the third missionary journey, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. Fourth, during the imprisonments of Paul, possibly all of them in Rome, but just possibly one of them a little earlier, say in Caesarea, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And fifth, those letters written after the Roman imprisonment and up to and including the second imprisonment, at the end of which Paul would seem to have been executed, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. I haven't tried to fit Hebrews into the list, nor to give any discussion as to the circumstances in which Hebrews originated. It is my own view, for what it is worth, that Paul must have been intimately associated with that letter also, whether the actual writer is possibly another matter. And that that would be quite late, sometime perhaps during the period of, of liberty between the first and second Roman imprisonments. The reason why one thinks that Galatians may well have been the first of the letters to be written is that it touches so intimately on the problems that we met at the end of Acts chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15 and with which the council at Jerusalem was concerned. The question as to whether Gentile converts needed to become Jews before they could become Christians, as to whether they did or did not need to be circumcised and to keep the law. And since that matter was definitively decided at the Council of Jerusalem, to which Paul in Galatians makes no reference, then I think the probability is that Galatians would have been written a little before that council made its decision, sometime perhaps while Paul was still in Antioch, having come back from his first missionary journey, and before he and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to thrash the matter out. Galatians was deeply concerned with that primary problem, ought the Gentile converts to be Judaized? Must they accept the blandishments, the reasonings, which led them to think that they ought to become Jews, otherwise Christ was of no avail? And Paul's answer to that was decisive. It was rather like the answer the Lord Jesus Christ had given himself, anticipating this problem when he said, you don't put a piece of new cloth into an old garment. You don't put new, still bubbling wine into old, brittle wineskins. This is a new start, and though it owes much to the preparation which the Old Testament gave, 
It does not simply build upon the almost complete foundation of Old Testament teaching and practice and put, as it were, a Christian crown on top of it. It starts a new way of life with a Saviour granting a new liberty. And so far is it from being possible to accept a willing circumcision and Christ at the same time that Paul says, I tell you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. You have to choose between the two. You have to decide whether you want the old, in which case you will not get Christ, or whether you want Jesus Christ, in which case the old can be seen as profitable shadows leading up to the coming of the Christ, but you must no longer regard it as being of the essence of the matter. It's one of the many issues between faith and works. If you try to save yourself by what you do, then you'll never get there because you'll always do too little. If you ask God to save you because you trust, then you may get there because of the trust itself. The Lord Jesus once put it in a very important way when he said, Ye then, when ye have done all these things, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that it was our duty to do. And I take the Lord to mean something like this. Imagine a king having an absolutely meticulous steward who never did anything wrong, who never wasted his master's goods, nor his master's time, nor lost anything that belonged to his master, nor put it to bad uses, intentionally or unintentionally, but did every single task he did with the utmost perfection. So that at the end of the day, you'd take an account of all that had been done, and you'd find out it balanced exactly. Well, then, says the Lord, what has that servant done? He's just not made a loss. He's not made a profit. Ye then, when ye have done all these things, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have just done our duty. And only just. God is no better off as the result of our service, even if we were as good as that exceptionally perfect steward. And we're not. Not any of us. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has ever discharged with the utmost perfection, without any flaw or fault, all that was laid at his door to do. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, though he could say, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, did not claim perfection on that score. He said, I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected, and he was talking about his death. And when that word perfect is used about the Lord Jesus Christ in the letters to the Hebrews, as three times it is, it tells us that God made the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. The Lord Jesus Christ is made by the promise of God a priest, perfected, made perfect, forevermore. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. So the Lord Jesus Christ, now consummate righteousness, arises not only because he did no wrong, though that was essential to it, as because he put away that which might do wrong by causing it to be killed upon the cross. So that he had not only refrained from evil, he had now abolished it for himself. And by dying in full trust in God became our perfected priest. And that's only the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, we have to say not we are unprofitable servants, we have done it was our duty to do, but we have not done all that it was our duty to do, we are servants showing a loss. And that loss could be through carelessness or misappropriation, or through positive criminal tendencies, 
as we take the things of God and make them our own. So we can never be profitable servants if salvation is to be reckoned by works. We should never think of standing in God's temple and saying, God, I thank thee that I am not as the rest of men, unjust, extortionate, adulterous, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give 10% of all my income. That's no way to talk to God. For it only needs God to strip away the cloak of hypocrisy and say, that's what you do as well, and those are the things you don't do, and uh, the publican comes off better. Especially when he says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's interesting, the difference between the Pharisee and the publican in that parable. <coughs> the Pharisee starts off by detailing before God his works. He starts off, moreover, in the, in the near blasphemous situation of going into God's temple and praying thus with himself. And saying to the God inside, God, I thank thee that I've made a very good job of myself. And asking the God above to appreciate it. The Pharisee in that picture is the kind of man whom I'm sure all Texans and New Zealanders and other outlanders here will appreciate. Like the Englishman who is a self-made man who worships his creator. That's what the Pharisee is like. He's proud of what he does and he thinks God should be proud of him. He knows there's a publican present. He is probably rather pleased there's a publican present. Not for any good he can do the publican, but for the good the publican can do to him. God has only to see the two of them side by side to say, how very good that Pharisee is. Just look how bad the publican is. He stands on the publican's shoulders and looks taller than he was. This Pharisee in the temple. The publican is quite different. He's no claims to make before God, no works to parade, no comparisons to make either. Whereas the Pharisee says, I am not even as this publican, and I am not as other men, <coughs> the publican might, for all we can tell, be unaware there are any other men. He doesn't take any notice of the Pharisee. He doesn't compare himself with other publicans. He doesn't say, God, you shouldn't think too hardly of me because there are others who are worse. He just says, Lord, be merciful to, or Lord, be propitiated to, me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, but the one, the only one he's considering. Like Paul saying later, who am the chief of sinners. He can't make any excuses for himself. He doesn't want to make any comparisons. Humble though he is, he is perhaps wise enough to see that he doesn't want to be like that Pharisee. So he doesn't say, make me like him, Lord. He just says, Lord, be merciful. And that's the kind of plea which every would-be faithful disciple of the Lord must, in effect, make. Lord, I can't do it by myself, and I've not been doing very well at all. Please forgive me for my wrongs and strengthen me to do right, and receive me, by the rebirth at baptism, as it proves, into the company of your disciples looking for your kingdom. And Galatians, in its own way, is concerned with dealing with that kind of problem with dismissing the demand for circumcision and with criticizing those who do demand it as being self-righteous persons who are only to be compared with the son of Hagar, the bondwoman, and not with the son of Sarah, the free woman, whose desire is moreover punctuated by pride and they are led on by the desire to gain their own glory by winning other people, as the Lord said about the Pharisees, 
who'll compass heaven and earth to make one proselyte, and when they have found him, make him twofold more a child of Gehenna than themselves. For those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a sharp contrast between what Galatians calls the works of the flesh, which are manifested. He gives an incomplete list because everybody can add to the list of works of the flesh. We all have our specialities. And then an example of what we rather inaccurately sometimes quote as being the fruits of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say fruits, he says fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, hope, against which there is no law. And whereas it were the flesh, that which trusts in works or delights in them, can specialize in sinning and do this particular bad thing worse, or is it better, than he does the others. You can't specialize in righteousness. You can't say, I'll have love, you have hope, he'll have joy. No, all those things are to belong to the fruit of the Spirit with its many blended flavors. There is one fruit of the Spirit. And moreover, it's not the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit, it's the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works are the things you do. Spirit is that which makes it possible for you to bear. So you bear the fruit of the Spirit by being on the Spirit's tree. I am the true vine, and ye are the branches. If any man bear fruit, then he is proved that he may bear more fruit. But except ye abide in me, ye cannot bear fruit, says the Lord. So the Lord's teaching and the Lord's baptism and the Lord's discipleship and the Lord's mediation are absolute and indispensable and complete when we get them. That is at least in part the message of the letter to the Galatians. And because it's the first place where it's done, it might be right to point out that that letter too describes the manner of the conversion from a work-bound person to a spirit-led person when he says, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. The word crucify is used very obviously about the crucifixion of the Lord. That was when it happened, physically, when he was nailed so terribly to the cross. The word crucify is used of the disciples of the Lord, who are, it seems, almost deliberately compared with the two malefactors hanging at the Lord's right hand and his left, when Paul says, I have been co-crucified with Christ. Sustaro'o, crucified together with. And when the Lord says, we have been co-crucified with him in Romans chapter 6. We join the company of the Lord upon Gallows Hill when we seek to become his disciples. As the Lord asked, if any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And despite all our modern weakenings of expressions like deny oneself and bearing one's cross, in Roman times, there was only one reason for bearing your cross, and that was because you had been condemned to death by execution. And that is what the Lord says to his disciples. If any man will come after me, let him do as I am doing, deny himself, as it were, try himself, and decide that he's not fit to live any longer, and get himself crucified. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall save it. And so Paul, in the letter to the Galatians itself, can say, I have been co-crucified with Christ, Nevertheless, I live. 
and yet no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith, the faith which is of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So that to the Apostle Paul, that description he later gives, which we know so well, of the impulse of baptism in the Christian experience, is that of starting again by crucifying the flesh first. We often unaccountably miss out that bit. And then burying it in the waters of baptism. And then start again a new resurrection life with our risen Lord. We that are baptized into death, into the Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, are baptized into his death. Our old man hath been co-crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. And the true Christian baptism is not the burial of a living creature. It's the burying of a dead one. We count ourselves dead upon the cross of Christ, and we say, I want that buried. And that's when you go into the waters of baptism. Then to start life again as a new creature. That was in the letter to the Galatians, the message Paul preached, and in the letter to the Romans, that which he elaborated. And it was that message which he and the others carried throughout their preaching lives as they went throughout the Roman world. When we return now to Paul's preaching, we find him about to set out with Silas. Having left Barnabas and Mark to go to Cyprus, upon what we call the second missionary journey. He takes a not unfamiliar course, goes northwards through Syria, round the corner into Cilicia, his own home province, confirming the ecclesias, and then goes on to that central part of Asia Minor, focused upon the capital and important cities of Antioch in Pisidia, Derby, Iconium, and Lystra. That's a confirmatory piece of work, going to ecclesias already in existence. Now, as Acts chapter 16 brings out, there is new work to be done and new fields to be opened up. And for the purpose, Paul has added to his company one Timothy. Timothy, who was taken and circumcised by Paul because they all knew that though his mother was a Jewess, his father was a Gentile Greek. And that creates a problem, perhaps. For Paul, who would give way to nothing in the Jewish claim that believers needed to be circumcised, is now found taking someone, becoming a believer, and circumcising him. One has the impression that he was baptized first and circumcised subsequently. But at least it happened. In which case, the claim of Paul to the Galatians, neither Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, might seem a little inconsistent, a little compromised. Why Titus not and Timothy so? It must rest, one feels sure, in the fact that Timothy, who would have been an object of suspicion to Jews had he not undergone circumcision as an adult, for they would have suspected that, rightly perhaps, in the fact that his father was a Greek, this had been ignored was to go with Paul on all his travels, would enter with him into synagogues, would be found in the company of Jews, seeking to win them first to the kingdom of God, and it would have been a quite unforgivable travesty of Jewish expectations that a synagogue which is close to Gentiles and is not open to those who are not circumcised should have been invaded against their law by a man who was not circumcised. 
So becoming all things to all men, to the Jews as a Jew, Paul himself, a circumcised Jew, made his companion the same, so that they might have free access to the place where they could then preach the meaning of the gospel of Christ. Well, as they went their way through Asia Minor, Paul and Silas and Timotheus, they tried to go to two places where they weren't allowed to go. Or at least they weren't allowed to work. They were, says Acts chapter 16, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And then they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And if at your leisure you look at the maps of Asia Minor, which your Bibles will contain, you will notice that to have preached in Asia would have led them to take a long time before they got to the coast. And to preach in Bithynia would involve a northeast diversion from the route to the coast, which might have meant that they wouldn't have got there at all, but would have finished up in the Black Sea area. And clearly God had something else for them to do. So Bithynia they mustn't visit, and in Asia they must not delay. They must keep on going till they came to the coast, and when they got to Troas on the coast, it was then that they had the vision of the man of Macedonia, Paul did, who appeared unto him by night and said, Come over us in Macedonia and help us. And we, says the record, rightly divining that God had called them to cross that area and go into Europe, went. We did. But we've not been talking about we up to that point. We've been talking about Paul and Silas taking with them Timothy, and they went on doing this, and they weren't allowed to do that, and they were instructed to do the other. And suddenly the writer says we. And it is no doubt correctly believed that they are we at this point because Luke has joined them. That the author of the Acts can put these things in the first person because he is there and experiences them in the first person and joins in the company of those who do what they do. Luke is in the company. He doesn't seem at this stage to have travelled very far with Paul. He went with him across into Europe and certainly to Philippi, but not much beyond that, it seems, for later the narrative goes back into the days and the Pauls and the Pauls and Timothys and so forth. Paul is back without Luke's company, though he joins him again later and is, as we know, his beloved attendant very close to the time of his death. So they cross over from Asia Minor and they go into Europe and the Gospel reaches our continent, well, mine, uh, for the first time. There they are in Europe, and they're preaching in Philippi, the place where there wasn't a synagogue. The place where they had to go to the riverside, where the women, the Jewish women, were accustomed to resort in prayer, and talk with them and convert them, and where they gained the welcome addition of Lydia, the seller of purple from Thyatira. And it was in Philippi that they roused the anger of the populace and were caused to be put into prison, and that splendid story of the Philippian jailer comes to our notice. It would sometimes be worthwhile to look at the stories of conversion that Acts gives to us in detail, for they all have their splendid story to tell. Acts chapter 2 that we've talked about already, where Peter's pointed preaching causes them to be pricked in their hearts, and then in their abject repentance they turn to baptism, and then we learn the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Or the occasion in Acts chapter 8, where Philip is sent after his work in Samaria to join himself to the company of the chariot in which the Ethiopian chamberlain was being taken back to Ethiopia. There they find him in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. That in itself is an object lesson. That man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. 
While he was there, he had doubtless seen and participated in the observation of various feasts, including the sacrifices of slain beasts, and perhaps he had heard rumours of other things that have been happening in that place of late. For certainly as he goes home, he's reading his Bible. How many people in our company, when they've had to go to an experience for which they have diligently prepared, prepared, do their homework again on the way home? Not many, but this man did. He was reading his Bible when the peak had been reached and he was going back to humdrum life. Perhaps Bible reading was his habit. Certainly he had some good reason for wanting to read it then. And he read that place of the scripture where it is written, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And when Philip was called by God to join himself to that man's chariot, he said, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? And Philip, beginning at that scripture, preached to him Jesus. What better scripture could there have been, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah? Where just before Philip joined him, the man would have been reading, He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was bruised for our iniquities. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I want to know about that man who bears our transgressions, dies for our sins, upon whom my iniquities are laid, that is my Saviour. Where can I find him? Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? And we have passed from the guilty, sin-ridden, murderous Jews of Pentecost to the highly respectable, rich and pious Jew of Ethiopia going to Jerusalem to worship. And the remedy is the same for both. Repent and be baptized to the Jews of Pentecost and see here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? To the Ethiopian Chamberlain going back to his country. And he is baptized when he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart. And like those full of joy in the church at Jerusalem that day of Pentecost, this man goes on his way rejoicing. And although the context of it acts is that the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and he was found at Ashdod, and he went on his way rejoicing, we know very well he didn't rejoice because Philip had left him. He rejoiced because of what he left him with. And that was the salvation he had received. So that's another and then, of course, we move on, as we have already moved on, with some attention being paid to it, to the baptism of the Gentile Cornelius and the manner in which that household was made happy and rejoicing when Peter left them with the gospel in their hearts. And now we come to Philippi. And Paul and Silas are cast, undeserving of any punishment, into jail and placed in the inmost prison of their Peter made fast in the stocks. And they sing hymns while they're there their own joy undisturbed by the tribulations through which they are going, and the smarts and aches in their open wounds. And the other prisoners hear them. And suddenly the doors are opened, and the shackles are loosed, and everybody is free. And the jailer comes in and sees what has happened, and is about to draw his sword and commit suicide, knowing that his life will be worth nothing if these people escape, and it comes to higher authorities' ears. And then there is Paul's, do thyself no harm. We are all here. And the man, trembling and afraid, coming and saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps not 
a conscious lawbreaker like the Jews of Pentecost, but certainly a brutalized man doing brutal things in the jail at Philippi and now but narrowly safe from taking his own life by the timely intervention of the ambassadors of the Lord. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The night-long preaching to him and his family, the washing of their stripes and their baptism, his baptism and his household's baptism too. And again, the rejoicing in that household as well when Paul and Silas leave. Things do not go well in Philippi. There's that being taken by the Romans and submitted to indignities. But on that occasion at least there is some little redress because when the magistrates send and say, let those men go, Paul with a surprising show of vigor says, nay, they have beaten us openly, being Romans and uncondemned. Let them come themselves and take it out. It almost looks a little vindictive, doesn't it? But it wasn't that. They were Romans, and they did have their rights, and it is certainly the right of every believer in all ages to take advantage of any law passed in his favour which does not injure anybody else, as when your country exempts Christadelphians from the draft, and then our conscientious objectors are allowed to have their liberty, or were in the past, and we hope maybe in the future or when those making contributions to Christadelphian causes can make them tax-deductible, and so make some funding of their contributions at the cost of what the state would otherwise have taken. And in a variety of other ways, we are entitled to use the laws of our country when the law says, yes, you are welcome to this, we acknowledge your right to it. And so it was with Paul and his Roman citizenship. If that could be used in the Lord's service, it was right and permissible to use it. If he could be spared some of the indignities that would have been inflicted upon him had he not been a Roman, then it was right that he should be spared them. He suffered plenty as it was. And then our conscientious objectors are allowed to have their liberty, or were in the past, and we hope maybe in the future. Or when those making contributions to Christadelphian causes can make them tax-deductible, and so make some funding of their contributions at the cost of what the state would otherwise have taken. And in a variety of other ways, we are entitled to use the laws of our country when the law says, yes, you are welcome to this, we acknowledge your right to it. And so it was with Paul and his Roman citizenship. If that could be used in the Lord's service, it was right and permissible to use it. If he could be spared some of the indignities that would have been inflicted upon him had he not been a Roman, then it was right that he should be spared them. He suffered plenty as it was. And so the need to make a public demonstration to those magistrates that there were rights that must not be contravened belonging to Roman citizens was there and was justified and needed to be declared to the people at large. It was right to say, let them come themselves and fetch us out. <coughs> but they left the city for all that. It was not really very safe for them to stay there now. And the next port of call was Thessalonica. And there they preached the Lord's words earnestly, and quite evidently a considerable number accepted the faith because it must have been quite quickly afterwards during the same journey that the Thessalonians received two letters from him. An almost surprising thing, in a way, that two such letters should have gone so soon when the church had been founded so recently. There were obviously problems there, problems that Paul learned only too well when he only narrowly escaped by, with his life and was sent away from there because the Jews were after him and found a temporary hiding place in Berea. No, it was not a comfortable life for the apostle. Wherever he went, the Jews were there looking for him, and if they weren't there, they came from the last city he had left behind and came and sought his life and sought to do him harm. 
and from Berea too, though they were, some of them, more noble than those of Thessalonica in that they received the God word with uh, gladness and examined it daily whether these things were so, and therefore many of them believed. Berea has not left its mark upon the history of the community in the way that Thessalonica did. And from there he goes to Athens. In Athens, having gone alone because there was work for Timothy and Silas to do in the area of Thessalonica and Philippi, which they had not finished, and he preferred to be left alone rather than bring them away prematurely, he found time on his hands. He preached in the synagogue of the Jews, and waiting for his friends, came across the Areopagos. And there he saw, or there he had seen, an altar to an unknown God. And this fired his enthusiasm and his zeal to such an extent that he wasn't content to wait till his friends arrived. Ordinarily, the Lord who had wisely provided that by two and two his first disciples should go out, no doubt expected that that custom would continue to be followed, at least not less than two and two, that disciples would not be left to stand alone, but would be given the brotherly support and love of a companion. But this time it was too much that to an unknown God, and Paul proceeded to reason against it, and was taken by those who questioned with him to the Areopagos, to the Mars Hill, as we call it, heavily overshadowed by the Parthenon, where the great things of Greek idolatry looked down upon him, and Paul seemed in a very puny position as he stood there. Mind you, the Parthenon is in ruins. And at the foot of the Areopagus, there is a plate bearing the whole of Paul's speech to the men of Athens in Greek letters until this day. It's nice to see it there. His, method has, his, his, his uh, message has lived. And as he stood there, he didn't mince his words, but said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are, oh, that can be watered down to somewhat religious, but I think the authorised versions, too superstitious, conveys the idea better. You seem to think that if you worship all the gods there are and make provision for the ones there might be, but you haven't met them yet, everything will go well. You seem to think that when there is pestilence in the land and you let forth a flock of goats and everywhere they come to rest you build an altar and make that out to a god and offer a sacrifice there, things will go well with you. But it's not right. There aren't so many gods. There's only one and he's not like goats or any other living creature. He can't be likened to any living thing and images of him should not be made. The god who made the earth of whom certain of your own prophets, pro poets have said, we are also his offspring. God who made the world ought not to be worshipped with men's hands by artifacts of human making. It's an interesting thing that rather surprisingly, Paul's message to the Gentiles of Athens, the sophisticated philosopher Gentiles of Athens, at one point makes contact with Stephen's message to the Jews in Acts chapter 7. For Stephen had said to them, having gone through their various places of worship and Solomon's final erection of the temple, Howbeit the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye will build me and where is the place of my rest? And so Paul in Athens says, Howbeit God dwelleth not in temples made with hands, but in every place he that worshipeth him is acceptable to him. Now, there's a very important thing, I think, arises out of the speeches which the various apostles and preachers of the gospel are known to have made in the Acts of the Apostles and some of the ways in which their letters are known to have been written. Paul was all things, as we said, to all men. 
And so, no doubt, were the other preachers, insofar as they had the same versatility of preaching as Paul did. So when Peter preached at Pentecost, it was Jewish history and these writings of David that led him up to Jesus Christ. And when Paul preached in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch, it was Jewish history and again the writings of David that led him up to Jesus Christ. And when Paul wrote his letters to the Galatians, it was messages from the law that provided his principal objective in arriving at the conclusion to which he wished to lead them. But when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he concentrated upon the Lord Jesus Christ, made minimal references to the prophets that went before, took them at their own standards and tried to preach Jesus on Jesus' own merits, as it were, with that as the starting point. And when he went to Athens, he started off with their idolatry and their vain philosophy and led them through to the one true living God who made heaven and earth and the final assurance given unto all men that God raised Jesus from the dead. I think there's some occasion to search our own hearts and our own practices in connection with this. I would not for a moment say that a lecture with Daniel 2 as its foundation is a wrong lecture to give. I have done it and will doubtless, God willing, do it again. I would not say that the adducing of fulfilled prophecy as witness to the truth of God's word is a wrong thing to do. Insofar as it lies within my power, I've done that too. And again, God willing, will doubtless do it again. I would say, though, that reference to prophetic matters, especially predictive ones that haven't happened yet, and a concentration upon the purpose of God in how we know that by a certain route God will achieve the fulfillment of his kingdom in the future, needs to be very carefully watched and kept within bounds if we are not to overbalance the preaching of the gospel. You don't find anything like that anywhere in the public speeches of the New Testament. And not much of it anywhere in the epistles either. You find appeals to the Old Testament leading you to Christ in Acts when addressed to Jews, Paul, Stephen, Peter. You find appeals to their own starting points in idolatry leading to Jesus Christ addressed to Gentiles in Acts chapter 17. You find Paul addressing King Agrippa and while telling him that he knows that Agrippa believes in the prophets, going as soon as he can from what the prophets have said to whom they were talking about and getting there to Jesus Christ and his works. And you find without exception that all these methods of preaching are intended to lead people to showing faith in Jesus, repenting and being baptized, believing the gospel and living the life that leads them to the kingdom. A case may legitimately be made out for avenues of approach which give particular ways of interesting people in the first place in the gospel which we have to preach. But if you don't get to the gospel pretty quick, we're not getting a very balanced message from the Lord. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. They preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Go through Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth and in all those places you shall be witnesses with me of my resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ commissions them. And I think our preaching of the gospel could well, at an earlier stage and more thoroughly, be more Christ-centered than it is. 
The message is to bring people to repentance and acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does in Athens. In that very well-known phrase, which we read, or can easily read again, the times of this ignorance God overlooked. But now commandeth he all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So God didn't think so hardly of those who were in their ignorance, and therefore were not accountable. He would think very hardly if those who were given the opportunity of light prefer to remain in ignorance or in ignoration or in disobedience. I am now telling you about the new light which has dawned, says Paul. The message of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he commands all men everywhere, hearing that message, to follow its consequences through and repent. It's repentance and remission of sins being preached in his name, beginning at Jerusalem and now having stretched as far west as Athens, which the apostle is talking about. That is a cardinal thing in his message. That is the burden of his preaching. And one of the reasons he gives for repenting is that he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now the word judge can mean more than one thing. It can mean passing an opinion about somebody else that we're told not to do. Judge not that ye be not judged. It can mean sit upon the throne of judgment on the day of judgment, judging the quick and the dead, which the Lord Jesus Christ will do when he returns. It can mean judging over the nations in the same way that the judges of the Old Testament were rulers over Israel. Rule over the world in righteousness. He will do that too, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes. But it's an interesting question. Does that verse in this passage mean he will rule the world in righteousness, which he will, or does it mean he will judge in the sense of passing judgment upon, deciding who is right and who is wrong, who is worthy and who is unworthy? And I don't think in its context there can be much doubt that that is what it means. For the apostle says the times of this ignorance got overlooked, but he now commands all men everywhere who hear the message, it would mean, wouldn't it? All men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day of judgment. Now, it wouldn't be much use, would it, telling the Athenians that they ought to repent of their sins and be baptized because one day Christ is going to rule over the earth. That wouldn't quite affect them. But it would be very important to tell them that they ought to repent and be baptized because one day Jesus Christ is coming back in judgment and they may have to answer for it. So that the message must have been relevant to that generation and every intermediate generation before the Lord Jesus Christ returned to the earth. This message of judgment, though it will involve the Lord ruling over the nations, was for those who heard then, for those who heard since, and for those who now hear the gospel, the message not only that Christ is coming to reign, but that if you are deemed by him to have known the gospel adequately to be responsible to his call, then that day will be a day of judgment for you also. He hath appointed a day in which he will do that. In fact, it finds its place together with a later message of Paul in the 24th chapter when he speaks to Felix in Caesarea about his faith. 
he begins by talking about himself and he says, I have hoped toward God, which they, the Jews themselves, also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. And says, therefore I exert myself to have a conscience void of offence. In other words, there will be a day when dead are raised. Those dead will include just and unjust, and I particularly want to be amongst the just. And so I exert myself to have a clear conscience now in my service to God. And then when he comes back for a second interview with Felix, he tries to talk to him of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. And that judgment to come undoubtedly there means the judgment which will sit to determine whether certain persons, and Felix was invited to think that he might be one of them, will be able to be admitted into God's kingdom or denied admission. And Felix plainly saw that when, when he heard Paul's reasoning of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Or as the revised version puts it, Felix was terrified. It's an interesting thing in the technique of preaching the gospel, that too, isn't it? There are those around us who tell us that the gospel is, and it certainly is, a gospel of love. In which God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. So love should be the keynote of the preaching of the gospel, we are told, and so it should, as far as it can. But just as the love to a child may sometimes involve its chastisement, so may the love which seeks to win people for Christ sometimes involve a pitiless revealing of the consequences that might follow if the love is not accepted. And as the Lord Jesus Christ, reported by John in John chapter 3, tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, and adds, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So does he find it needful also to add, but this is the condemnation. The light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And so for all the love that is shown in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are some for whom it is needful to warn them. And if anyone hear my word and believe not, I judge him not. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him at the last day. And so to Felix. Reasoned with about righteousness and temperance, there must be added for the sake of the possibility of conversion of that wicked man, something that might make him afraid and then make him think. Apparently it didn't, but it might have done. And so Paul reasoned with him of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come and succeeded at least to the extent of making him fear and tremble. And if that had led to that man being introduced into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and joining the company of the elect, then Felix might in a future day as some other people similarly warned might do, welcome the opportunity of going to the one who gave that message to them and saying, thank you for saying that, that pulled me up in my tracks. I went back and I learned and I obeyed, and I wouldn't have been here but for your word. So a word of warning is right in its place. And to those supercilious philosophical Athenians, Paul gave that same message don't suppose that having heard this word is a matter of indifference whether you do anything about it. There's a command from God. You're his creatures. You're his workmanship. Now become his servants and his sons. God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So now he commandeth every man to repent. 
and the assurance he has given that he will do so by the man whom he has ordained is that he hath raised him from the dead. And so Paul joins again the company of those who focus their teaching on the cardinal point of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that having been crucified for our sins, he was raised up for our justification and takes us back to the empty grave and the risen Lord as the route to his return. 